Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Holiday Powers, the host of the channel, and today we are going to be talking to Bahia Shahab about her new book, A History of Arab Graphic Design, written with Haitham Noir. So, Bahia Shahab, thank you so much for joining us and welcome. Thank you for having me. Bahia, can you start by telling us a bit about yourself? Well, I'm currently based in Cairo, but I was, uh, I'm originally Lebanese, so I identify as both Lebanese and Egyptian now. Uh, I teach at the American University in Cairo. I'm also a practicing artist and an author. And so how did you end up writing this book? How did you and Haitham decide that you wanted to work together and focus on this topic? Honestly, 10 years ago, when I was uh, designing the graphic design program at the American University in Cairo, I included a course called um, A History of Arab Graphic Design uh, with no idea on where we will get the material for the course. I just wanted to have it in the curriculum in the hope that we will develop a book one day. And then Haysam joined the department and we thought together that it's really urgent that we start writing this book together. So we applied for a grant, uh, a research grant from the university um, and we got it. And we worked for around um, two years. One year was for research and another year was on the writing and it was published by AUC Press. Well, it brings together an enormous amount of research and also a huge amount of images. You guys were able to find just an incredible amount of material to bring to the book itself. Uh, true, we did, we did uh, invest a lot of time in looking for images. Actually, we, always, we, we keep saying that what we have in the book is less than 20% of what we actually found. We had to negotiate with the editors a lot uh, for them to increase the number of images allowed in the book. They were very uh, kind and accommodated, but we have so there is so much to talk about. Uh, and we only always say that this is the tip of the iceberg when it comes to Arab design, you cannot really contain Arab design in, in one book because you're talking about the geography that spans from Morocco to Iraq. And that's a huge a geographic scape with um, a different, a different uh, nationalities, but also different uh, outlooks on life, different histories even though they all speak the Arabic language, but there is so much diversity uh, and richness that this is simply the beginning. We hope that the book will encourage more researchers to look deeper into the history of, the, of design in the region. So you broach graphic design from the perspective of the larger social and political context. 
Can you describe that a bit, what that meant to you to understand graphic design in context? Definitely. This is this was really important for us to communicate with our students and our readers uh, that uh, the idea that design is really part of everything in everyday life, even though people do not notice or they they take it for granted. So, for example, some of the logos we found who the designers for their major institutions all over the Arab world and the people living in the Arab world barely know anything about the designers who designed these logos that they interact with every day or the metro signage system or the street sign names. So all of these, uh, this information of, of a visual knowledge as an Arab that you interact with every day, but you know nothing about its history. So we started with a hundred, it covers roughly a hundred years of design in the Arab world from uh, 1900 till 2000 because we wanted to stop before the internet. So because we feel like the, when the internet was introduced, the, de the design language changed uh, drastically. So we stopped at the year 2000. So contextualizing design in its political, social, and economic narrative was very important. And linking these designers to, their hist to the history of the region and the history of, uh, again, the political, economical, and social uh, background in the region was very important for us in the book. So you start the book with pre-1900 sources of inspiration for Arab design. So linking it with um, more Islamic art. Can you describe what that sort of, uh, as well as early Arabic printing, uh, can you describe what that kind of connection was? Yeah, uh, thank you for that question because this is really one of my favorite parts because as we were studying these designers, we discovered traces of Islamic art in their work that was very evident, and especially calligraphy, the, the, calligra the, callig the rich calligraphic tradition of the history of um, Islam was very present in the work of designers, not just as a communication uh, for its communicational value, but for its aesthetic value also. They were developing and elaborating on these styles and it was still part of their life. So it was really important for us to highlight the influence that Islamic art as a, as a field, how it impacted the visual language and how can we relook at Islamic art from a design perspective, this was what's very important. Because if you look at Islamic art, there's really a lot of design in it. All of the geometric, intricate uh, motifs, uh, the arabesque, what they call um, uh, the, the, the structured calligraphy, whether Kufic or the Aklamisitta, the, the other calligraphic styles. So all of these systems of design really transitioned and were translated into modernity by these designers. And we really wanted to create the link in the minds of the reader that these designers, they do have traditions that predates uh, colonization and that predates European influence on their work. That continuity seems important in terms of both looking back and reimagining also what has happened in the past, but also moving forward in terms of 
the aspects of that design that you are emphasizing. Yes, and the question, the the main question about the future was also raised by designers in the 60s and the 70s in post-colonial Arab world where, where designers were trying to create what Arabic looks like or what an Arab identity looks like. And their concern was also the future of uh, Arabic visual language. And that's not just Islamic art. You would find that art uh, uh, designers and artists in Egypt were relooking at their history also, ancient Egyptian uh, designers in Iraq and the Levant were also looking at um, Phoenician, Assyrian, and different older civilizations that were inspiring also their design. So re-looking at these ancient cultures for designers was important to create la a language for the future. So you move from this look back into history into um, in the early 1900s, an emphasis on artists and calligraphers with early designers. So talking about the foundation of art education in the Arab world, Arabic calligraphy designers, early Arab advertising and Arab filetti, filetti? Up design. Okay. Yes, so it was, it was important to, to, to create a differentiation between calligraphy and uh, the role that calligraphers played in society because they were in the courtrooms of kings. They, they were, I mean, at one point you had maybe 50,000 calligraphers in Istanbul working. They were a very important part of society because they were, uh, they were the, the scribes. They were the transformers of knowledge and they were the ones write, actually physically writing the books, pre-printing. So the status of a calligrapher in society was very high. They were very well paid and um, they were very well educated uh, also and belonged in the upper echelons of society, let's say. They were part of the nobility of society. And you find that changing with the introduction of the printing press and the, the, how their role starts decreasing. But their impact remains even till today. The importance of what they do and how they develop is still very important because of the nature of calligraphy and the nature of uh, the writing systems. So we wanted to highlight first the role of calligraphers, but also how also artists, because, the, because at that time there was yet no field of graphic design. It, it wasn't uh, common that uh, a field is called what graphic design was. You had um, calligraphers and you had illustrators. And then they either the calligrapher would combine his work with that of an illustrator or the printing press would ask them to submit their work and they combine it together. So you the concept of an art director was really not there. It was in the process of being developed with the, all the technological developments of mass production. Um, and thus, uh, also, the schools, it was important to show how these European style schools of uh, art education were starting to open in different parts of the Arab world at the time, um, mainly first in Egypt and then uh, in the different parts um, uh, a bit later on. So the foundation of art education was also important to understand for the field of uh, graphic design. And you give a lot of information about all of the different institutions. It was so wonderful to see that broken down by institution to understand each one individually. 
Why was that important to you to include that kind of granular detail? Yeah, I think I wish Haysam was here because he he really he's the one who suffered the most with that part. Because what was interesting is that the names of these institutions also changed over time. And every time our editors would relook at the text and the name has changed. So everything we were going back and forth with several revisions because of that part. Well, the reason is a lot of the Pioneers, the design pioneers that we call pioneers, actually studied as artists. And it was important. And many later on graduated from these schools and they were art directors. So it was important for us to create a structure where the lineage could be referenced of these designers. So this is why it was important for us to go into details on the foundation of these schools. It's also interesting to bring together those two significant shifts of the creation of art schools and the rise of the printing press and to really highlight how those are coming along at the same time and really shifting so much. Yeah, true. And the design is actually when these two come together. So that's why it was important for us to look back because design is text and image and how you manipulate the presence of text and image on a page. So having both as a background was important. You move from there into, into the 20s and 30s, Design for the Masses, talking about Arab magazines and newspapers, the Arabic typewriter and Design for Cinema. So a significant shift, can you, describe those different um, aspects? Yes, so as, as we said, we really wanted to contextualize design with, with what was going on in society. And, and during that time, you had a thriving film industry in Egypt that was also supporting and in need of this design. So the, the, what happened is the need for the designer was created before the designers. So once these um, openings, this need for a poster, for a, a bill to be designed for a film bill. They used to create these beautiful film uh, booklets that they would hand out on opening nights. And we have a gorgeous collection of those at the Rare Books Library, where they put the names of the cast with really beautifully designed pictures and frames and really amazing typographic experimentation, really wild ones. And there were a lot of Armenians, Greek and Italians uh, living and working in Egypt, uh, especially in the film industry and in the design uh, aspect of that. Uh, so it was really nice for us to see in that period, the blend between European and Arab design taking place there in these experiments. Um, and so how, how did these technologies, the, the, the development of cinema, uh, TV, and other uh, communication channels, how did that affect designers and their work? How about foreign magazines and newspapers? Well, that would, we, this needs a book on its own, actually. And <laughs> actually, the, my students' research work now, when we are teaching the course finally with a textbook, is... Uh, to actually research in independently these magazines and newspapers, because I think that's a, a whole pub. Editorial design is like Arab, Egyptian editorial design 
deserves a publication on its own. As I said, this book could not really contain everything we wanted it to. It deserves like revisits, maybe people taking it and developing more topics. So if somebody wants to write a book on Egyptian editorial design, I ask them to come contact me and I can tell them where to go and how to collect all the data. Well, and it's so important also to have a first step to have this first book to be working with because it's already bringing together so many of these different elements and opening them up for further research. Yes, exactly. It's a stepping stone. So you then go into the 40s and 50s, Arab design and modernity, um, in which you are really thinking about the independence of Arab states and design in the context of decolonization. Can you describe that? Yes, this was an extremely exciting time in the Arab world because uh, designers were looking for a language. And um, it was important also for us to try and pinpoint who were the pioneers and who were the designers who really kick-started these, uh, these design movements in the region. Um, and so we start by uh, naming uh, a few of the pioneers we found uh, in Egypt. And unfortunately, due to, to our research limitations, um, most of the designers we found were actually from uh, Egypt, but understandably so also because of the traction that Egypt has had historically for the Arab world, because of its size, because of its geography, because of its political weight. So you had an influx of talent into, um, into Egypt. Um, and so this period is again important in highlighting the pioneers of, of design. And so who, who were some of those designers? Had they come up through the art schools? Yes, of course. Abdel Salam Sharif, Hussein Bikar, these, these, what, these are what we call the first generation designers. And they had their students that will follow in the following uh, chapters would be the ones who would continue their vision and disseminate more the knowledge on art direction and design as a field. What were, can you describe some of the, I don't know, hallmarks of design for in this period? Like what would, how would one characterize this period of design? Uh, definitely like uh, shy, I would call it. <laughs> it's uh, timid. Uh, at, at some point, it, it's like you're, they're still trying to, like the work of Abdel Salam Sharif has a lot of thin line art for the covers with uh, typographic experiments. At some points when they're working for cinema, they're very bold and daring. And then when it's magazines and book covers, they're more timid, more classical, more um, uh, mimicking classical writing scripts. So I feel like it was, a, it was the, that, this and the following few, uh, uh, one or two decades, there was a lot of experimentation and uh, really trying to blend uh, calligraphy with different visual styles. Why was it important to work on creating this new kind of visual language in the con in the context of independence and political decolonization uh, because it's part of identity 
it is, I mean, visual language is uh, the, mo the most basic manifestation of identity is a flag, right? And the flag is design. So you need a designer to design that flag. So what the, how do you summarize what this nation looks like and how it represents itself to the world? And this is the job of designers. Uh, what do official letters look like coming out of a president's office? This is design. Well, how would a, a kingdom versus a republic uh, communicate with the outer world? What is their press releases? What are their magazines? Uh, the official, like the national newspaper, what does the national newspaper look like and how is it a reflection of identity? Like the Ahram newspaper, they have three pyramids uh, behind the logo that is written uh, with a beautiful calligraphic style. So these decisions are design decisions and designers make them and they shape the identity of a country. You continue on thinking about this relationship of design and politics in moving into Arab design and the Palestinian resistance. Can you talk about um, the resistance posters? Yes. Um, I cannot talk about this uh, chapter without giving credit to the uh, Palestinian Project uh, Archive online. This is an amazing database of uh, posters that have been published for the past maybe 70 years. They have everything you can think of on anything related to the Palestinian cause. And so we started from there. Uh, we started looking at who were the major designers who contributed to this cause. And actually, th that was also a leeway in helping us find names of designers for the whole book. Because that platform, any designer in the 60s and the 70s who cared about the Arab world contributed to the Palestinian cause in one way or the other. They all donated posters. They all helped many of them at least helped with the Dar al-Fat al-Arabi publishing house in Lebanon that was started in the early 80s and then bombed and destroyed uh, after the Israeli invasion in 1982. So uh, it was the, this online archive was like a gateway into the names of all the uh, important designers in the Arab world who contributed uh, to the cause, but also to their communities. Was that the case before the War of 1967 or primarily after? I think it continued. It was before and then it continued till later. And then there was a time where all that uh, stopped, uh, as you know, historically. But um, it was really lovely to trace how they were translating ideas into like how, how they were simplifying, like the work of Helmi Tuni that was so powerful and folkloric in a way and very vernacular in its style and how he translates the cause, how he draws Palestinian women or Burhan Karkutli from Syria who identified as a Palestinian, how Burhan's uh, women and men uh, and the way he drew them how they represented the Palestinian people and the Arab people at large. So it was nice to see the translations of different designers on the same concept. I think this is also what's very interesting in the Palestinian chapter. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Did that transnational connection lead to transnational trends in design? In the sense that we're talking in the previous chapter about something that is very national, but then in moving into Palestinian solidarity, that also opens up this transnational realm of solidarity. Does that lead to shifts within the design? Actually, we don't have enough data to, to verify that. And this is what I hope other researchers will help will come and help us try to decipher, decipher because unfortunately there are countries that we could not have access to. Uh, due to time, due to political situations, like I had to smuggle myself into Syria to meet the designers from Lebanon because the country was closed. We had no access to Yemen. We had no access to Iraq. We couldn't get visas to Algeria. So I feel like there are major gaps in our research. We need other researchers to help us fill them so we can really have a proper uh, idea of how uh, these important styles how were they disseminated and how did was there cross-pollination and the ideas were was there i we don't know we don't have that data and we need more researchers to work with us on collecting and finding this data i'm sure there were traces the traces i can tell you of is the links with the european and the international styles and that was very interesting for us to see that designers when you talk about for example schools like minimalism or psychedelic art, like Burhan Karkutli has one of the few examples of psychedelic uh, Arabic writing that uh, we found really, really funky in the 70s, beautiful uh, wedding card that he designed in 1977 from Germany. And you can clearly see the influence of, uh, of psychedelic typography into his Arabic typography. You have somebody like Rafa Nasri who went to study in China and he came back to Iraq and then later settled in Jordan. And you could see the Chinese influence in his work. Others, other designers who went to study in Russia, you also see um, uh, like constructivist or you know, the Russian style very clear in their, in their uh, design, uh, some of their design solutions. Some Eastern European uh, educated designers also came back with an influence. So it's nice to see how this, cross-pollination from diff not from just from ancient culture like or ancient history of the country but also how they were in conversation with the global uh, uh, community of designers and how they were really at par with what was going on globally it was not like they were uh, copying or mimicking but they were taking this important human idea that was there for the world like uh, everybody was dealing with it and how they translated that into their own language and their own society. In thinking about the, these global dimensions, but also some of the research challenges that you brought up, you also have a chapter 
for the 1970s about Arab designers in exile, thinking especially about um, the Lebanese Civil War, the Syrian design school, designers from Iraq, um, design in Egypt, Arab African design, and then third generation Arab designers. Can you describe some of that? Yes, I actually, this chapter comes as an answer to a challenge we faced because we, what is Arab design? Because we were thinking, like, do we include only designers who live in the geography of the Arab world, but then understanding the nature of the Arab world, it is impossible to write the history of Arab design without the designers of the diaspora. Because as we saw, uh, you first have the first uh, migration from Palestine, then you had the Lebanese war, another migration from Lebanon, then you had the invasion of Iraq, a third migration of designers leaving, and then you have the war in Syria and more. So you end up finding three quarters of the designers, either their studios have been destroyed in their countries and they lost access to their archives, or they have relocated and started life elsewhere. So from, from that perspective, it was important for us to reflect on how designers, even though they were not in the geography of the Arab world, they were still able to contribute to the narrative of, of the visual language and the society and the political changes. You have somebody like Yusuf Abdelki uh, from Syria who lived in exile for 20 years in France, but was still designing caricature and book covers and posters for the Arab world and many others from Lebanon and Syria and Iraq. How did you decide who to include within that chapter? It seems like once you talk about diaspora, it's so expansive. That must have been a big research challenge just to get the field into something manageable to include within this book. Yes, actually, thank you for that question, because this, this we were criticized a lot about this. But again, as you said, you need a point of reference where you can limit your research. You cannot include everybody. And we made the very difficult decision of only including designers who used Arabic in their design, which was really unfair to other designers who were trying to integrate with their community and were creating amazing work, but in a language other than Arabic. So th that was also a point of um, discussion between Haysam and myself. Um, we discussed it extensively because as I told you, the data is too big. It's impossible for us to narrow it down without really like, like I know it's a bit of an aggressive decision, but we really needed to create a system uh, to justify our choices. And so we mostly included designers who kept working with Arabic. And so did that mean that they were specifically collaborating with Arab institutions or, or was that potentially also design that was done in Arabic within their local communities within the diaspora? No, there are se several levels. So uh, you have someone like Kamal Bulata, who was uh, originally from Palestine, then moved to Lebanon, eventually moved to the States. And then uh, finally, he passed away, uh, unfortunately, recently in Germany. Uh, he's somebody who has been moving around a lot. And um, uh, everywhere he goes, he develops design uh, for his community. Uh, 
for events that are happening with him for the Arab community and the country he's in, but also sometimes he would collaborate with publishers in the Arab world and he would send them his designs. So they were, some of these designers were dealing with both worlds, the, 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 diaspora, the diasporic reality that they were living, but also they always kept threads that linked them back to the homeland in one way or the other. So they were, you had Lebanese designers living in France and publishing magazines that would be circulating in the Arab world because of the Lebanese war that was unfolding and the lack of an infrastructure. They all migrated to Cyprus and eventually moved either to London or Paris and set up headquarters there. I mean, in terms of newspapers and magazine publishing. Can you also talk a little bit about the Arab African design? Because we've talked about the Lebanese and the Syrian and Iraqi, but just bringing in that African element. Yeah, so if you look at the Arab world, half of it is actually in North Africa. So it's you have Morocco, Algeria, Tunis uh, and Egypt, Libya. Um, uh, you also ha have, of course, most importantly, Sudan. So, uh, so all of these communities who were dealing with their own issues, with their own, like it's really important. And I cannot stress that with type designers from the Arab world think that type design is recent. It started in the 19th in Lebanon. And I always like to raise my hand and say, excuse me, Khurtum had an Arabic type design school back in the 1970s before anyone else in the Arab world. And so we feel like design in Africa needs a, a lot more research. And Haysan is really starting to focus his research on that uh, area of design in Africa. And we hope that there will be more scholarship. The countries we were able to slightly document were Morocco, Sudan, and Tunis. But we have nothing on Libya, very little on Al Algeria, and a little, as I said, a little bit on Tunis. So we really need more scholarship from this uh, region. I can understand that. You move into the 80s with design and the search for a new identity. What do you see shifting in the 80s? Well, uh, I would say power dynamics. You know, politically speaking, this uh, the, the dream of an Arab unity has been dismantled. You have in Egypt, uh, the invasion of the multinationals and the free market, uh, the opening of the market uh, by Sadat and then later by Mubarak. Uh, you had the civil war in Lebanon and the consequences of that. You had the Gulf state that were booming and recruiting designers from the Levant, from Sudan, from Egypt to sit and cater to this booming uh, um, um, society. So you could see a lot of political shifts in the region. And it's nice to see how that reflected on the design and the work of designers. How, what are examples of how that would affect design? So you'd have more uh, bigger national projects in Egypt, like the 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 metro they built the metro and the signage system was needed for the metro you had these huge uh, uh, underground tunnel mosaic designs that were being installed by the government um so 
and, and the kinds of commissions that designers were now being, it's no longer just a book cover or, you know, a, a magazine masthead, but now they were really contributing to big national projects uh, that entailed big teams, that entailed collaborations. So th that was interesting to witness. And you also talk about Sudanese designers within the diaspora within that chapter focused on the 80s. What um, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, I love these examples because I think their work is just gorgeous. I'm in love with Hassan Musa. His, his, his work is just fantastic, fantastic, beautiful, intelligent. Uh, he created this. Uh, so let me talk about Sudan. It was so uh, after uh, the political disruptions, many designers also left. And you had, we, we have two important case studies, Tajisir Hassan, who migrated to Sharjah and settled in the UAE. And he was also educated in London. Uh, a brilliant calligrapher and type designer. And he was really very important for the design development of the design scene in the UAE from the 80s onwards. And on the other hand, you have Hassan Moussa who migrated to France and who was interested in more political publishing. And he had this underground political magazine uh, um, called Johanna, which means hell. And he uses the logos of Coca-Cola and Shell to create the word Johannam. So it's beautiful. And the way he disseminated this before internet is he would number his, uh, his copies and he would give them out. And then his friends would travel, photocopy them and give out 10 copies. And everybody would photocopy 10 copies and give it out. So he has no track of how far his publication went. But anybody who has a copy, he can trace the origin. So extremely intelligent um, systems of underground dissemination. Uh, so it's just genius. Uh, and uh, plus his beautiful zoomorphic calligraphy that is just gorgeous uh, with the tens of books that he has designed for children from the 70s when he was Sudan, in Sudan and then later when he went to France. So. Um, I think we really need a book on Sudanese designers. Please, everyone, do something. <laughs> <laughs> the book ends with the 90s, um, what you call the rebirth of Arab design, including the post-Lebanese civil war. Can you describe that chapter? Yes, in, in that chapter, we highlighted a few important ideas, I think, uh, uh, what happened in AUB, the American University in Beirut, uh, 25 years ago was very important. It has created a group of designers where I can only give credit to that school for my education, but also my colleagues who have graduated from that school now are really some of the top Arab designers in the world. You have people like Tariq Atrisi and Nadine Shaheen. So you have really big names in the global Arab design now that are standing at par with many designers globally and who graduated from that school. So the impact that that school had because of its post-war condition, because of the dreams of the professors who were teaching there left a very big impact on visual language uh, in the region because many of the students went into 
TV design, typography design, not just graphic, the classical graphic design, in my case, curriculum development and history. So it really branched out into different uh, disciplines, but the vision was one. It was also coming from the same source. So it was important for us to highlight the work of the professors uh, at the time there and their vision. And we also looked at the work of uh, the Egyptian school and the new designers who are emerging here, Walid Tahir, um, Ahmed Al-Labad, who's the son of the notoriously famous, brilliant uh, Muhyiddin Al-Labad, uh, Egyptian designer. Uh, and so, so highlighting their work and how they are developing a really strong and impactful visual language in spite of everything was also important. And I think we end on um, artists that inspire designers. And that is also one of my favorite parts uh, because we looked at the work of these amazingly brilliant artists like Njay Mahdawi from Tunisia, Rashid Quraishi from Algeria, um, uh, Hassan Masoudi from Iraq and how their typographic experiments, uh, calligraphic experiments within their art inspired literally generations of artists and designers, not just in the Arab world, but all over the world. Well, Bahia, I think that we have taken up so much of your time. So thank you for joining us. Before we finish up, can you tell us what you are working on now? Actually, I have uh, two upcoming research projects that I'm very excited about. Uh, one is on the history of advertising in Egypt. And I'm really interested in looking at how, um, how advertising literally changed the way people dressed, ate, consumed uh, over the past uh, 50, 60 decades. So that's one research. And my other research is on a visual history of the veil. Oh, that's a, it sounds like really different projects, like big shifts within your work. <laughs> yes, yeah, so sure. one is more of an art, the veil is more of an art, uh, of an art slash research exercise, and the advertising is more of a research research exercise. That sounds wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Bahia. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Bye, everyone. <laughs>